tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Huh? What do I do with the car? You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> The Cult Worthy Classic, a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure film and cult classics made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove that they are in fact cult worthy. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio Palacios. I am your host. Now when it comes to the pre-production code comedies of the 1930s, the Marx Brothers' five films made under the Paramount Studios banner were considered among the best. In a three-year period, they released the comedy classics The Coconuts, Horse Feathers, Monkey Business, and Animal Crackers, each of them more successful and popular than the last. Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and the overshadowed Zeppo were the faces of comedy, and rightfully so with their inventive and manic screwball slapstick that has been often imitated but never fully replicated. However, by the time their final film with Paramount was released, the country was deep in the depths of the Great Depression, a time where film studios began to feel the pinch of the stock market seeing ticket sales plummet and forcing their hands to trim costs and wages of their employees, a move that eventually created the unionization of film workers, as to never be exploited by the money men ever again. So it seems that during this time of financial crisis, as well as the unstable political climate, releasing a biting satire based on the separation of social classes, the seemingly dim-winded and oblivious political figures of the time, and last but not least, the ever-growing fear of another world war on the horizon, it isn't a surprise that Duck Soup was a financial and critical flop at the time. However, it has been looked at by generation after generation since as a biting statement of the hypocrisy of the era and perhaps the most influential screwball comedy of all time. A top 10 amongst revered filmmakers like Stanley Kubrick, Martin Scorsese, and yes, even Woody Allen, this film is a legend in its own right and to deep dive into it and the parallels of its message in today's divisive climate is my friend Leo of the Movies on Weed podcast. So enough of my shenanigans, let's start the show. All right, everyone, I am here with Leo of the Movies on Weed podcast. A wonderful discovery that he actually found me and I started looking at his podcast and listening Leo, this is a great little show. Tell me how you started it. Well, um, hi, Antonio. Hi. <laughs> uh, I just started it on my own. I mean, for a long time, I wanted to do something. I mean, as far back as well, public access, I was thinking about doing it. But thanks to quarantine, just staying isolated at home, next thing I know, hey, you know what? Let's try a podcast. I ended up downloading on uh what was it anchor i just i just thought about it i'm like all right let me let me try it let me try it because i mean for the longest time i'd been bugging my wife giving her all kinds of useless trip 
trivia regarding movies. And mind you, she is not into movies like I am. Uh-huh. So it's like, she's just like, oh my God, can you just shut up about it? Shut up, shut up. <laughs> try try it, yeah, try to, try, try to tell somebody who cares. I'm like, oh, that's right. Podcasts, there we go. And there are people out there that care. And here's the thing I love about your show. So my other show, The Cultworthy Podcast, I do four reviews about like seven to eight minutes each of each film. So it's like a 30 minute podcast. And I'm always like, man, is that enough time to go through a film and really kind of explain it to people so they get it and then they want to see it? Then I started listening to your show and your average episode is like seven, eight minutes. But dude, I got to tell you, you sum up a film in seven to eight minutes so well. I feel like I've gotten the synopsis of the whole show. You got all the actors in there and the filmmakers and like other things I've been in. And even more impressive, you're smoking weed while you're doing it. Uh, well, uh, you're kind of half right on that. Um, <laughs> I, I like to, while I'm researching the movie, I like to smoke on it. And oh. um, it, it kind of, yeah, it kind of it helps looking at it, breaking down a movie in a different way. Yeah. The next thing I know, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll just type up as many notes as possible. Something that, I mean, kind of stands out to me at the time, something I might find like a bit questionable. I mean, for example, um, what, what is it? Uh, that, that's my boy with Adam Sandler. Yeah. Uh, one, one time I was so on a good one. I I thought I was watching like a powerful drama. I mean, this is Adam Sandler (laughs) and, uh, Andy Samberg. Andy Samberg. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, your sexy beast episode is oh, one of my favorites. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's that uh, you know, the the funny thing about that one is uh I'd seen it like a long time ago, but it, it was just something that kind of stood out to me. It was just so so I guess so childish in a way, like the way Ben Kingsley acts, but at the same time he's so intimidating and it's just yeah. like just that that sheer fact that this guy played Gandhi Right now, he suddenly, yeah, he's the gangster bullying people around. I mean, dude, you can't make this up. Oh, yeah. We've seen him play soft characters. We've seen him play intelligent characters and scientists. And for him to kind of jump out and be like this cockney gangster really kind of like gave himself another move in his career. It took him one step up. And we've seen him play villains since then. And every time I see him play the bad guy, even if it's a bad movie, I am like, so happy to see him on screen. He is an icon. He is an icon. He is definitely one of those guys that, I mean, really, is there anything he really can't do? I mean, not to mention, I mean, he, he can get you with something as powerful like a drama, but then he can turn around and do a gangster movie. And what was it, this last movie that I saw him in? Uh, 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 spoiler alert, Shang-Chi. Oh, yeah. I mean, come on. He reprises that role of uh, Trevor from Iron Man 3, which, in my opinion, completely underrated. I thought it was a great movie. But the fact that they brought that character back in the and just dude, he's just awesome. Yeah, um, I mean, in Iron Man three, he plays like a dual role because he's playing like the Mandarin, a villain, only to find out, spoiler alert, that he's an actor who's kind of like eccentric and kind of weak. So it's a double performance almost. It's like we get two Kingsleys yes, for the price yes. of one. Before we jump into Duck Soup, I wanted to ask you a question. Like, as I've been following you on social media, it appears that you where you're at in los angeles have like this great community of latino podcasters that you all kind of like join together and have like this kind of network 
I, I the Mega Man podcast and the retro guy, and I just see more and more. Can you can you kind of deep dive into that because it fascinates me. It makes me wish we had something like that out here in Utah. Actually, it's it's interesting the fact that like once once we started podcasting and kind of started listening to each other's podcast, just just listening just out of sheer interest then little by little started discovering oh my goodness we're within driving distance of each other next thing you know we start just listening to each other's podcast okay you know what i dig what you're doing you know you like my stuff hey let's try crossover and yeah. for the most part with uh retro retro historian uh to be honest he's just a buddy of mine yeah we we met through a mutual friend and I just tossed him the idea, hey, you know what? Why don't you sit with me? We can do a, a sessions episode in which we'll just sit down and watch an entire movie. And the original gimmick to that was it was gonna be um it was gonna switch off like a movie he's never seen before compared to one that I've never seen before. And just like our reaction, mind you, at the same time. I mean, we're getting drunk. Yeah, it's like a drunk mystery science theater. It's a blast. It's like you guys are doing like a commentary track on a DVD. And there's a lot of fun. I listened to the um, uh, Hot Rod episode, and I felt like I was there in the room with you guys. It's a lot of fun. I wish we had stuff like that out here in Utah. I've made a lot of good connections with like other podcasters all over the world, but to kind of have a community like that, like you said, in driving distance, man, I wish that's something that we could have out here. So that's really good. I wanted to know what that was, what that was all about. And I gotta say, I'm envious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just one of those things, man. I mean, on top of that, I mean, we really don't have that many like Latino podcasters, especially like around like before when I first started listening to it to to podcasts. It was just it was just fascinating just hearing like different ones. I mean, some of my favorites was um, Joey Diaz with yeah. uh, Joe Rogan. You had Segura. You had uh, Ari. And next thing you know, I mean we start listening to it and I just start discovering all these other Latino ones. And it's just like, Oh, wow. Cool. So, you know, we kind of reach out to each other. Hey, you interested? You know, let's, uh, let's try something, see if it'll work. Yeah. And the reach is far out there because podcasts can go everywhere. So like I've been watching and listening to you guys all the way here in Utah. And it's funny, like when I check my stats, a lot of my listeners are like in California or Australia or Germany and I'm just here in Utah talking about movies. Oh my God. Yeah. By the way, uh, yeah, I've I've actually uh been to Utah and by the way, nice, a really nice state. I was there this weekend. Oh yeah, nice. So to speak. Yeah. I mean, dude, that's it's great. You know what? You you, you gotta shoot down. You gotta come out on our sessions episode. I, I'm one of the I want to one of these days. I've I've got some time off coming up and I wanna start making some rounds. So, man, how about we jump into duck soup? And before we do I let you pick this one. Normally, I'm picking movies. And when we first started talking, I was like, I don't know your film history. What are the films that you would like to talk about? And you shouted Duck Soup and Wild Bunch. And I was like, oh, I can talk to this guy. Let's do Duck Soup. Oh, Your Excellency, I must speak to you. I'll see you at the theater tonight. I'll hold your seat till you get there. After you get there, you're on your own. Hello? Hello, yes? No, he's not in yet. All right, well, goodbye. That was for you again. I wonder whatever became of me. I should have been back here a long time ago. They got gone, we got gone, all got killed, got gone. 
you know, it was funny. It's funny. Uh, what got to, what got me about duck soup? I have to give a shout out to Rob Zombie because uh, I believe he was doing a, a press tour on uh, Entertainment Weekly mm-hmm. regarding I think Thirty One, and one of the one of the um, movies they had asked him. One of his favorite ones was Duck Soup, Marx Brothers. Now, mind you, I've been a fan of Rob Zombie since since high school. Mm-hmm. So I was like, dude, Rob Zombie, he likes a black and white film by Marx Brothers. Dude, I am in. I want to watch it. And just, dude, I sat down. I watched it, dude. I laughed my head off, like right. ridiculously. <laughs> and usually it's like, I, okay, I don't like old movies. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, correction. I don't really watch vintage movies. Awesome. But, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this one I definitely had to make an exception. It was, it's, it was just ridiculously awesome. And I, my personal opinion, it still holds up in a comedy classic. Absolutely. And you know, it came out in 1933, directed by Leo McCary. It was like the last of the big Marx Brothers films. And to think that, you know, between 1930 and 1933, they had done five films that were all hits. This one, however, was not that big of a hit because it came out right in the middle of the Great Depression and people couldn't afford a ticket. So on paper, it didn't look like it was successful, you know, 90 years later, and it's considered their masterpiece. And it's on all these lists of one of the best comedies ever made. you got people like Rob Zombie talking about it. It's been an inspiration for filmmakers like from Woody Allen to Scorsese. It is just one of those films that has really kind of stood the test of time. There's a lot of political things behind it too, you know, where most of their films were kind of maybe played a little bit with like, you know, the the class warfare of the day. This one was really kind of pushing the envelope of what was going on at the time with dictators invading and starting these, you know, political and ideological wars. And here's a movie that's making a joke about it 10 years before Chaplin did The Great Dictator. The way they pulled it off, I mean, it, like like you said, I mean, it got referenced by a lot of other directors. One, one film that actually did get referenced by, you actually brought it up in your other podcast for Ben Zone. There's a little scene in there. You can actually hear it being referenced in there. And I mean, dude, it, yeah, yeah, it, dude, it just holds up. So the basic story is you've got the country of Fredonia. Gotta love that name. (laughs) And it's uh, right next to a country called Sylvania. And they've kind of had like this, you know, peaceful existence with each other, dealing with each other financially and kind of just sharing their goods and their commonwealth. And they have the need for a new leader. And Margaret Dunamont, who plays Mrs. Teasdale, She's been kind of lending money to the other countries and they need someone to kind of like take control of the country. So she reaches out to a guy named Rufus T. Firefly, Firefly. played by Groucho Marx. And here's the thing about this film. The story doesn't need to make sense because you've got all these series of Marx Brothers sketches that they kind of just had to build a story around it. Oh man, Rufus T. Firefly. I mean, what kind of what kind of a name? But yet, I mean, what better actor to play than Groucho? It doesn't really make sense. It doesn't have to make it sense. Doesn't it doesn't have just, to. Exactly. And I mean, it's it, and it works. It works just so well. They're like they're epic. I, I mean, this is all before the brothers even come into 
the scene. Yeah, you've just got Rufus. So like he shows up and he's uh, the, the funny thing about this film is like it's commentary on like the political world how really they don't need to know anything. It's just like leading with confidence and leading by the seat of your pants. He just comes in there and he just starts making all these new rules. He goes through like this big spiel about in my country we're going to do this. These are the laws of my administration. No one's allowed to smoke or tell a dirty joke, and whistling is forbidden. We're not allowed to tell a dirty joke. If chewing gum is chewed, the chewer is pursued, and in the who's cow hidden. If we choose to chew, we'll be pursued. I will not stand for anything that's crooked or unfair. I'm strictly on the up and up, so everyone beware. If anyone's caught taking graft and I don't get my share, we stand them up against the wall and pop goes the weasel. So everyone beware. If any man should come between a husband and his bride, we find out which one she prefers by letting her decide. If she prefers the other man, the husband steps outside. We stand him up against the wall and pop goes the weasel. You know, and he's got he's got his little song. He's got his little song and dance about how they're going to lead the country. And the funny thing is, is that all of his rules are absolutely ridiculous. But because he's such a great pitchman, everyone's on board like that's such a commentary about how politics works even today you get a charismatic character starting to kind of like dictate and give rules and people just kind of go along with it so again we've got this 1933 comedy that's really making a social and political commentary that i think maybe at the time went over people's heads you know and the intellectuals maybe didn't like it because it was kind of shouting them out for like what they were actually doing that's yeah, that I mean, that's true. That's true. But also the fact that I mean, if you really watch it, you just see how ridiculous it is. I mean, it just goes over people's heads. It's like they're not really taking it seriously. But it's like, I mean, you can like you said, I mean, you can compare it to a lot of, I guess, the political aspects to it. And it's just like it's telling you a message. It's making fun of everything you you hold dear to you. Right. I mean, it's fun. There's there is a lot of truth in comedy. A hundred percent. That's an excellent statement. And I, I think that's why people these days, you were talking about like the podcasters that you're listening to, almost all of them are stand-up comedian. People these days are starting to take stand-up comedians more at their word than people are listening to the actual news, the mainstream media, you know, because that's that's such a weird commentary about society today. And if someone's trying to make an argument that this is something new, show them this film and be like, no, we were talking about this back in 1933. Exactly. I mean, I mean, look at it. Look at it today. I mean, now, I mean, what what would you say? Maybe about 15 years ago. What, what did people say about Joe Rogan? I mean, he's he the fear factor like, okay, guy. Yeah, exactly. The fear factor <laughs> guy. And before that, what was he? The, what was it? The talk talk radio guy? New, news radio. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. News radio. Yeah. yeah. And on top of that, it's like even then with any kind of political aspect, what did they start doing? I mean, they started asking Dave Chappelle, what do you think? And right. you want to hear his commentary first. And then based on his answer, it's like, OK, he says, give him a chance. We will give him a chance. So it's like, yeah, I mean, 
comedians, they are our modern day prophets. They tell us what to do. Yeah. And these guys back in 1933, I'm not going to say it's much as like it was their intention to make that happen. Because if you go back and watch like Horse Feathers and Coconuts, they're not as politically uh, set and sound as this film is. You know, think about the, the stand up comedians of, you know, our childhood, like maybe the 70s and 80s. If you were going to talk politics, you were making fun of it. I think the only comedian that was really kind of like really going hard in the paint at that time was George Carlin. And he put out like a special yes. every couple of years. And it was more about like getting you to think more. You know, and then you had like Lenny Bruce in the 60s who was kind of opening the doors for comedians these days and Richard Pryor as well. They also told a lot of fart jokes and 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 things like that. But yeah, like that's what I like to tell people is that you, you made a great statement there about comedians being the modern day prophets or the modern day philosophers. You know, back in the 1930s, I think if they would have had podcasts and if they would have had access to freer thinking and less reliance on the media, especially, you know, you had William Randolph Hearst at that time owning every newspaper in the country, his thoughts became the country's thoughts. So having films like this, where they could put a funny face on it, really important. Yeah. And plus, not to mention, something tells me uh, William Randolph Hearst, he really would have not approved of my podcast. <laughs> we, what, really? Yeah, no. Shut it down. Right. <laughs> Yeah, shut it down. Get him out of here. <laughs> so, yeah, um, we get through the whole part with Rufus doing his thing and starting to take over the country. And, you know, what? he's just a mile a minute with all these one-liners. You can't even keep track of them. And, you know, this was made before the, uh, the production codes of Hollywood. It's pre-code. So there are a lot of little one-liners that are, Kind of heavy, even by today's standards. Gloria, I've waited for years. I can't be put off any longer. I love you. I want you. Can't you see I'm at your feet? When you get through with the heartbeat, you can start on mine. If that isn't an insult, I don't know what is. Gloria, I love you. I realize how lonely you are. Can't we go someplace where we can be by ourselves? What can this mug offer you? Wealth and family? I can't give you wealth, but uh, we can have a little family of our own. Oh, Rufus. All I can offer you is a Rufus over your head. Your Excellency, I really don't know what to say. I wouldn't know what to say either if I was in your place. Maybe you can suggest something. As a matter of fact, you do suggest something. To me, you suggest a baboon. What? I, uh, I'm sorry I said that. It isn't fair to the rest of the baboons. This man's conduct is inexcusable. Why, I'll... Gentlemen, uh, gentlemen! I did not come here to be insulted. Oh. That's what you think. You swine. Come again? You worm. Once more? You upstart. That's it. As chairwoman of the reception committee, I welcome you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? I've sponsored your appointment because I feel you are the most able statesman in all Fredonia. Well, that covers a lot of ground. Say, you cover a lot of ground yourself. You better beat it. I hear they're going to tear you down and put up an office building where you're standing. You can leave in a taxi. If you can't get a taxi, you can leave in a huff. If that's too soon, you can leave in a minute and a huff. You know you haven't stopped talking since I came here? You must have been vaccinated with a phonograph needle. The future of Fredonia rests on you. Promise me you'll follow in the footsteps of my husband. How do you like that? I haven't been on the job five minutes and already she's making advances to me. Not that I care, but where is your husband? Why, he's dead. I'll bet he's just using that as an excuse. I was with him till the very end. <laughs> no wonder he passed away. I held him in my arms and kissed him. Oh, I see. Then it was murder. 
Will you marry me? Did he leave you any money? Answer the second question first. He left me his entire fortune. Is that so? Can't you see what I'm trying to tell you? I love you. Oh, your excellency. You're not so bad yourself. And yeah, it would be considered problematic today. But just think about what people thought about it in 1933. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? I don't, I don't really think they really paid too close attention to that because how many jokes does he tell you? I mean, he was like a machine gun when he would come out with the dialogue. It was, the jokes would just come a mile a minute. You'd have to like rewind it, watch it several times before you even caught it. It's like, wait, wait, what was that? Oh, Yeah, it also makes me wonder like how much of the jokes were actually in the script and how much was he just riffing off during filming the way like Robin Williams would in a film, you know? How, man, how many of those jokes were actually on paper? The next part that we get into is we are introduced to the other two Marx brothers, um, Harpo and Chico. And if you thought Rufus T. Firefly was ridiculous, these guys are brought in as spies by Trentino, who is like the, the dictator of Sylvania. He brings these guys to spy on Rufus T. Firefly in Fredonia. So Chico plays a character named Chicolini. He's a peanut vendor. And Harpo plays Pinky, who is kind of like a man of all trades. He's a chauffeur. He does lots of different little odd jobs. But in typical fashion for, for Harpo, he doesn't talk. He just kind of communicates with pantomime and his series of little horns which is just great and like all these scenes with the two of them are just really built around Chicolini's banter and Harpo's on-screen performance of all of like his gags prop comedy it just works so well and I think that's one of the things like with that classic vaudevillian chemistry of a comedy group you know like with the three stooges you know Mo was like the straight man Curly was like the joke guy, and then Larry was kind of like the idiot. And with the Mark, with the Marx Brothers, you got Groucho as like the word man, the straight man. But Harpo and Chico don't really operate as well on their own. They kind of need each other to work, and that's why all their scenes are mostly put together. That's true. That's true. But you know what? I mean, as great as Harpo really is, and I mean, I've I've, I've watched the film several times, just loving Harpo's just performance in that I've, you know what, I really have to give it to Chico on this because he, the, the way he kind of comes out with him and Groucho, those two, they go at it back and forth. They, they go on. Cause like you said, I mean, Groucho was a straight man. And for the most part, you could almost say he's like what the, the Mo of the group, he's yeah. the leader, but except kind of Chico, tends to give him a run for his money because it's like they, they kind of pull each other a couple times. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. it's hilarious. And they're both really good at the really fast-paced banter. So a lot of the scenes that are a lot of fun are where they're kind of going back and forth with each other. You know, when they're That's first right. bringing him in, when he wants him to be like the Secretary of Treasury. Hey! You want to be a public nuisance? Sure. How much does the job pay? I've got a good mind to join a club and beat you over the head with it. Be not to you. Have you got a license? License? No, but my dog, he's got a millions of them. Believe me, he's some smart dog. You know, he went with Admiral Byrd to the pole. I'll bet the dog got to the pole first. You win. Come on up here, I want to scare the cabinet. Hello? Hello? No, no, he's not in. All right, I tell him, goodbye. That was for you. 
I'm sorry I'm not in. I wanted to have a long talk with you. Now, listen here. You give up that silly peanut stand, and I'll get you a soft government job. Now, let's see. How would you like a job in the mint? Mint? No, no. I don't like a mint. Uh, what other flavor you got? Hello? Hello? No, not yet. All right, I tell him. Goodbye. Thank you. That was for you again. I wonder what ever became of me. And then later on in the trial scene where they're just kind of shooting back and forth. Hello, boss. Chickalini, I bet you ain't the one we find you guilty. That's no good. I can get ten to one at the barbershop. Chickalini, you're charged with high treason. And if found guilty, you'll be shot. I object. Oh, he'll object. On what grounds? I couldn't think of anything else to say. Objection sustained. Your Excellency, you sustained the objection. Sure, I couldn't think of anything else to say either. How he ends up getting Chico to be a Chicolini to be part of his his crew, part of his cabinet, is he's out there vending peanuts, and he calls him through the window, and he's like, you know, I wish I could join the club so I could beat you over the head with it. <laughs> he goes peanuts, peanuts. Yeah. Chicolini's part in this is he's not doing anything right intentionally. He keeps getting closer and closer to Rufus and into the cabinet just by a series of misunderstanding and slapstick. You know, it's all a matter of circumstance, which makes it even funnier because it's like everyone's kind of getting the the goal that they're trying to achieve, but not intentionally. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, they it's they all they all try to get there to the same spot, but somewhere along the way they just get detoured just by amount of jokes and then in the end, they just come back together, and it's like, oh, okay, they get the goal. I mean, for example, what's that line where Chico tells uh, Groucho, where he says something like, uh, you know what, I'm I'm thinking about getting a standing army. And they're like, why a standing army? Because we'll save money we'll on, on chairs. On chairs. <laughs> yeah. And just as he kicks them out of the room, and I mean, it's, it's hilarious. It's classic. And cinematically, you know, the film does a lot of interesting things. Like, I didn't notice it until, like, the third time I watched it, Groucho breaks that fourth wall a lot of times. Like he'll 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 do some jokes with with the people on the screen, and then he'll look at the audience and kind of like deliver the punchline and breaks the fourth wall. And he's the only character that does that. Yeah, yeah, and that that tripped me out a lot too. Being the fact that it's uh, well, it's I mean, how old is this movie? I mean, 1933. Breaking, 1933, and he's already breaking the fourth wall back then. I mean, nowadays it's what. Guarantee you're going to get it in a Deadpool movie. But it's like, dude, Groucho was doing it before then. Yeah, 100%. You know, we, we've kind of left out, and I think it's not that uncommon. We left out the fourth Marx brother. We left out Zeppo. Zeppo. And Zeppo. that's kind of like a common trait. Doing research on this, and I kind of knew this a little bit, he's always been known as, like, the unfunny Marx brother. Like, he never really does a lot of comedy like, if Groucho's the straight man, Zeppo's, like, the dead man. Like, he really doesn't do much. And in this this film, his character barely even exists. And it was the last time he performed on screen with the Marx Brothers. You know, they had, like, their big five films, and Zeppo was always a part of it in a very small way. And then after this, they kind of just kicked him out, you know, and... It's not really that surprising. I feel bad for the guy. But how do you be a fourth man in that group when you've got Groucho and all of his witty one-liners, Chico, who's kind of like the mix of Harpo and Groucho where he has a lot of physical comedy, 
but can also shoot those one-liners back. And then Harpo being what he is, just this enigma of a performer, there really was no room for Zeppo. If Groucho was a straight man, I mean, Zeppo was the assistant. I mean, he... I mean, there's that there's that one scene where they're t- they're they're going back and forth about a joke that uh, he says something about Tarantino. He's a very sensitive man. Mm-hmm. He says one time I said something in his presence, he got offended and I got hit. That just that setup between him and Groucho going on it was just brilliant. The way they set it up and the way they completed, they're all like, "So what? What exactly did you say?" Then uh, he whispers in Groucho's ear. Groucho just slaps him. Yeah. Says, Who told you that? It's like, where'd you hear that? It's like, you told me. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. But the way, yeah, because it it seems like at the same time, he was the only one that could really blend in with just the madness that was the 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 Marx brothers. Where everybody else, you could always see that they kind of like stood out. You could see that, you know, they're actors. Among them, I mean, you know, especially when you're among your brothers, you're going to be acting extra silly. And he was that one guy. He was always, he was the straight man. He wasn't as wacky as all of them, but somehow he just kind of, you could you could see the balance, the needed balance, which, I mean, I, I, I get they got rid of him, but. You make a really he, good point in that. And I think one of the reasons why this film kind of was his last one is because it is the most ridiculous and outlandish of them at least the other films were set in a somewhat normal reality and this one's set like in two fantasy countries with a ridiculous war going on having that kind of fourth guy that kind of like set up and punching bag guy this movie was just too big to have that character and maybe that's why he ended up not being in any future ones is like he kind of didn't prove as useful in this world that they've created as the reality that the other films were in, where he was like a more normal character that could blend in in a normal world. And those three were the weirdos, but this movie is just all weird. So having that one kind of normal guy doesn't really work. You make a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And plus not to mention, I kind of did like a little bit of trivia on it. I had read somewhere that I guess Groucho had actually, he actually, and enjoyed Zeppo's performance, his mimic of him. Mm-hmm. And there's that one mirror scene later in the film. If you really watch and slow it down, you really can't see whether or not it's Chico or really Harpo. And yeah. I think I might have to go out on a limb. It might have been Zeppo that pulled that off. Because I mean, a lot of people thought it was Chico, but I mean, really, really try and rewatch it. Because it's like you can kind of see like. Chico's mannerisms, because I mean, there's that one scene where they all kind of dress up as Rufus. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, in the little outfit. But that mirror scene. That mirror scene, yeah. Little... The mirror scene is, yeah. is, is groundbreaking. And I'm sure that it's been done before, but that is the scene that like Bugs Bunny did it, Tom and Jerry did it, Mickey Mouse did it, and they all kind of credit that. And I kind of love the whole setup of that scene is like, this is the moment where Ciccolini and Pinky, so Harpo and, and uh, Chico, are about to get the crucial documents from the safe, and they sneak in to Rufus's mansion. And it's got one of my favorite moments with Harpo, where he goes to crack the safe, but it's not a safe, it's the radio, and he turns the it radio. on. You know, and just that little bit right there. Hilarious. 
and then you know runs into the mirror smashes it dresses up like rufus and then you've got this 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 beautiful scene that's hilarious where it ends up with all three of them dressed in the nightgown with the mustache all doing this act and yeah that would be really interesting to like go back and see if zeppa was actually one of those guys if they snuck him in there that'd be really really cool yeah and i mean i mean besides i mean i mean you could you could kind of tell you could kind of tell it's zeppo i mean if he were to talk but just the fact that it was just it was all quiet the scene there's no there's there's no dialogue whatsoever i mean it's all just physical and i mean you just well, I yes. mean, if you see Zeppo, he's he's that average man. He's the plain guy. He's a plain brother. But you know what? You put a mustache on him, put a cigar in his mouth and a cap, and it's like... Yeah, it's funny. Like, I never realized how much they looked alike until that scene, you know, because they've all got their real prominent character, you know. Chico's got the hat and the, the kind of mussy dark hair. Harpo's got the curly hair and all the props and the top hat and Groucho with the iconic mustache. And it's funny, you know what the Mandela effect is, right? That's correct, yeah, I know. For years, for years, I always thought that Groucho wore like a fake mustache, like a prop mustache. And you would talk to a lot of people like, yeah, he wore a fake mustache, it was a prop mustache. And then you go back and look at it, it's like, oh no, he painted it on, and it was always painted on. It's that weird Mandela effect of like people thinking that it was a fake mustache, like I did for years, just to go back that it was painted on. Yeah, yeah, you're not the only one. I I thought he actually wore it too. It's like no, it was it was painted on. It's it's that yeah, and it's, it's that and Mandela it's, effect. And it's obvious too. It's not meant to look good. It's like an oh. obvious. So it wanted to look bad. It's it's painted on, and not to mention yeah. How, I mean, how quick does Ciccolini put it on when they go? In that uh when they go into the what is it the nightgown outfit yeah he goes he grabs grabs a little bit of ink and just wipes it okay cool i got the mustache now and you know as the film kind of goes on like you said there really isn't like as much of a story it's more a bunch of different little set pieces set to the sketches that were written for these guys to play in when it gets kind of serious is when rufus decides to go to war with sylvania and they have this big musical number that's like pro-war. At first, nobody wants a war. But now that the dictator is all set to go to war, everyone's behind him. Everyone get your gun. I mean, they make a battle cry to war with a banjo routine. <laughs> you know, they start playing banjos and they're singing, Oh, Fredonia, don't you cry for me, you know? They're doing this whole musical number. They're about to go to war. How does it culminate with uh, with Harpo doing the whole Paul Revere bit? Oh my and God! Har yeah, he, him just going on there. And another thing, how you were mentioning certain certain little things you could get away with a movie like that. I mean, the peeping nobody scene. Really mentions how how much how much of a womanizer was Harpo in that movie? Right. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's pinching butts. He was googling women. This was, this was before the whole Me Too thing. Yeah, he would. 
Yeah, he couldn't have gotten away with it. And the fact that during that whole little battle cry, he's kind of hauling, just riding the horse, just going through town, honking the horn. And what stops him? Huh? What stops him? A lady. Exactly. A lady <laughs> in the window goes inside the room, sees her, goes back outside, puts the bag over the horse's over the <laughs> horse's mouth. He's like, yeah, I'm going to be here for a while. A while, buddy. Goes back in there. Yeah. And Oh, wait, you know what? This has to go back. One of my favorite um, bits out of the entire movie has to be uh, Harpo and the lemonade stand guy. Yep. And this is that culmination throughout the whole movie. Just, just a, I love, I love how these brothers, no matter what, they can never ever be intimidated. They can never be bullied, including Harpo. You imagine he's going to be what the most, the weakest link out of all of them. Yeah. He's getting into it with this lemonade stand guy. Who's and huge. By the end, yeah, this huge, huge. And just just the fact that it ends, this whole bit, it ends with him getting with the lemonade stand guy's wife. Oh, man, it's just hilarious to the point where, okay, he, he comes out of the literal tub that the guy just climbed in because he's had a <laughs> rough day of just dealing with this guy. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I lost it. I lost it. It was so hilarious. And it's like one of those things where you're like, you have to pay attention because like, oh, these guys had this tussle with him. You know, they had the peanut stand, they had the lemonade stand and that just genius hat routine. Again, hat. you didn't need any music. The only sound effects in that scene are the sounds of like the guy getting kicked and the horns beeping, you know, perfect. You don't need a laugh track. You don't need a funny score to go behind it to tell you that this is funny. And that's one of the most brilliant things about these, you know, these comics that worked the vaudeville circuit before movies were a thing. It was all about this, and I use this every episode, and I know people have already kind of told me about it. I've talked about the economy of production, the economy of storytelling, the economy of this, the economy of that. When you're a vaudeville performer and you don't have a backup band, you don't have a bunch of prop guys, you're doing it all yourself, there is an economy to your act, to your to your comedy, like less is more work with what you got and just rely on your talent and your charisma. And that's what made these guys genius. I would say that there's very few comedians on film these days that pull that kind of energy off. I'd say Robin Williams was one. Jim Carrey was another. And then you get a bunch of guys that try to be that. And it's obvious that they're trying where all three of these guys, these Marx brothers, it looked so effortless. And that's what made it great. They probably worked for hours to get these comedy routines and these sketches together and make them look so perfect and flawless. But on screen, it looks like they do it every day just as you know, as easy as breathing. Yes, yes. I mean, you couldn't have said it better. I mean, there's, there's a point to just... It's just so effortless, like you said. And the fact that it just goes back and forth and it's just so, it, it almost seems like it's ad-libbed at times. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it, they made it look just so brilliant. I can't, I really cannot imagine how long they had to practice on some of these bits. Hey, that's a good one, eh, boss? Yeah, right. I mean, come on. Really? <laughs> you know, there's several different writers that are credited for writing like the story and the exposition of other characters, you know that every scene that the Marx brothers were actually doing and performing, like 
that's them. That's them doing it, and someone's making a movie around them. You don't see a lot of that anymore. I'd say maybe the closest thing to that these days is Sasha Baron Cohen, you know, with his Borat characters. He develops yes. these characters, and he just kind of has he has the biggest balls in the world, if you ask me, to go and talk to all these people that are actual political figures or people on the street that would probably kill him if they could, and he never breaks character, and they build a movie around all these little things. Like That's probably the closest that I can think to that in at least our time. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? I... I would I would say that I would also I would also like to bring up um, what Johnny Knoxville did with the Jackass uh, the series that little bit of uh, the angry uh, the grandpa yeah Ir- the old Irving man. the yeah yeah, yeah or- when when he yeah when they ended up making that that actual movie on on its own and there were those little bits in which now that they okay we'll put him among real people and he, we're going to do a stunt and everybody's going to freak out on it. And I mean, now everybody's starting to copy that. I mean, yeah. what was it recently? Um, Eric, Eric Andre, Eric Andre. And, yeah. He's uh, kind of like the next version of that. Yeah. And it's, and they're, they're doing the same way. I mean, he's, yeah. I mean, he's just continuing that, that whole sense of humor that it works. I mean, it's just so effortless, just so, so random somehow it it just works you bring a good point like all those jackass guys again that is something that if anyone ever tried to copy that formula it's never going to be as successful because everyone knows where it came from and we don't know of anything like the marx brothers before the marx brothers so having them do these films especially duck soup we can only see echoes of people trying to do what they did in this film in films that came in the future, you know? I would say that if they were around today and came out today, they would be just as popular, if not more popular, because we haven't really seen anyone like them since then. To be honest, I don't I don't think we ever will. They were just they were just a one of a kind. And it's just the fact that one, they're all brothers, and two, they were all hilarious. And it's yeah. just, just the way they would all work off each other, and it was just, it was so awesome. I mean, I guess the closest thing you could almost say would have been the Stooges, but they were more, a couple of them were brothers, a couple of them were cousins, and the rest were filler. But yeah, I mean, just the fact that they were all brothers, they were all related, and it's just, yeah, that that we're never gonna see that in our lifetime. I, if, if ever again. Yeah, it'd have to be something very special, very unique to kind of capture that kind of magic. I want to see something original. I want to see something unique. I've heard you talk about this on your on your podcast before. Man, like with all the remakes and all the reboots, there's just like this lack of originality. You know, we just keep making Spider-Man after Spider-Man. We keep making Matrix after Matrix or a movie that wants to be the Matrix it's kind of sad to think that like the big screen theatrical comedy has kind of died because it stopped making money. You know, it was really peaking in the nineties and it had its time in the two thousands. But like when Sandler started just making Netflix movies, it was, it was things like that, that shift where the funny movies started ending up on streaming or they were ending up as limited series and we're not seeing a good old fashioned laugh your ass off in the theater comedy 
And I think that's why Jackass was such a huge hit this last couple months, because people want to go to a theater and laugh with each other. And we're not seeing a lot of those anymore, you know? So maybe we are due for like a renaissance of that big screen comedy. And maybe it's something like this that's going to bring it, you know? Yeah. I mean, and not to mention, uh, going back to duck soup. I mean, the fact that that pulled it off and you can almost say it was family friendly. You can watch it with your kids. I've mm -hmm. seen it with mine. They love it. And I mean, I mean, you can, you really can't get away with that with, uh, with jackass where it's more for mature audiences. True. If, but I mean, I think the closest thing we've had was, I almost want to say like Napoleon dynamite. Cause when that one came out, I mean, a lot of people, they laughed their heads off and especially people that were into cult films. Yeah. It had that, that cult status that where you actually, okay, you saw the humor in there and that, I mean, still, I mean, people are still laughing at that one yeah. nowadays, but it's like, yeah, definitely. It's, it's really overdue. And the nineties. Oh yeah. The, the comedies, there was, there was a point. Okay. You had the eighties where there were the, the rated R comedies. You had the Porky's, yeah, you had Porky's, the Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah. yeah, then you had you had the 90s with, uh, what was it, like American Pie and stuff like that. But then you had like the 2000s in which they kind of went into like the PG-13 mm -hmm. era. And it's just, ugh, no. You know what? We, we're definitely due for a big screen comedy. And I mean, seriously, I mean, people really loved Jackass in the theater. Mm -hmm. And yeah, everybody wants to see it. They want something original. They I'm, want something original. Tired remakes. And we want to laugh again, you know? Like, yes. I, f I feel like we all take ourselves and what's going on in this country, especially the last two years with all the pandemic and lockdowns and stuff like that. As theaters start opening up, yes, Spider Man's going to make money because Spider Man's always going to make money in this new Marvel Disney conglomerate. But. We want to feel safe again to laugh with each other, no matter what our political opinions are, no matter you know what our social status is or how rich or poor we are. When you're in a movie theater and you're laughing at the same jokes, it's a connection that just you can't get anywhere else. And I also like the fact that when people get up in a comedy in a theater and walk out because it's just too much for them or whatever. There's also some humor in that because now you feel like you're even more a part of an exclusive club or like, oh, well, I think this is even funnier now because that guy left. I, I, I miss those days and I hope they come back because it sounds like a pipe dream and it kind of sounds really stereotypical. But when they say laughter is the best medicine, like, wouldn't it be funny if it was laughter that kind of brought us back together as a country? I think so. I think so. I mean, here we have uh, the Gene Autry Museum, okay? Mm -hmm. The the what was it? Who was he? The the Singing Cowboy. Yeah. And yeah, there was there was a point they were playing uh, Western films over there, and what was the first film that they played? Blazing Saddles. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, of all movies, to the Singing Cowboy, a rated R comedy by what? Well, by one Mel Brooks, an absolute comedic genius. But I mean, nowadays you can't get away with stuff like that. But yet, if you play that, and people still laugh at it. I mean, some people will take it too hard. They're like, "Oh man, you can't, you can't. Why are you laughing at that? You can't laugh at that." No, yes, you can. It's funny. 
It's a joke. It's, it's a joke. It's a joke at everyone's expense. And I think that's exactly. what that's what people I think forget sometimes is that humor works best when everyone's the butt of the joke. Yes. If everyone's just poking if everyone's just poking fun at like one class of people or one race of people, that's when things get a little bit uncomfortable. But when everyone's the butt of the joke, that's when we can all start laughing at ourselves. And yeah, that's the thing is like, I usually don't get into like political stuff on my show, but man, like it really, it really makes me sad when we start seeing things try to be funny, but try to be careful. You know, like let us be the judges of what we think are funny and whether or not we want to watch it. And I think that is one of the things that's kind of getting taken away from us is we just aren't allowed to think things are funny anymore when everything should be funny. We all need to be the butt of the joke. We all need to make fun of everybody, rich, poor, black, white, all in one movie and just let it happen. And this movie being 1933, it does that. It makes fun of the political mindset. It makes fun of warmongers. I mean, Benito Mussolini banned this film in Italy because he took it personally. He thought that they were seriously making a joke about him when they really weren't. They were just making fun of dictators and warmongers to begin with. But how does that show like this guy who is supposed to be this all-powerful dictator is actually so insecure about a little movie made by four Jewish comedians in 1933 that he bans it. That's you hilarious. Know? That is hilarious. Plus, not to mention, going back to Duck Soup, I mean, during that whole war scene, if you notice, every scene, Groucho is in a new uh, outfit. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on, really? It's Come on, just, just lighten up. It's funny. It's funny. Like at the end of the show, he's like in a um, safari uniform or whatever the hell that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How the hell? Of all, of all things, a safari. And I mean, yeah, and uh, as a matter of fact, I think the only one that actually goes to battle is Harpo. I don't even recall anybody else going in there. Well, Harpo's out there. He's got that sandwich board that says, join the army, see the Navy, and C is spelled wrong. <laughs> That's exactly. one of my favorite gags exactly. in the movie. And on top of that, he ends up- yeah, and on top of that, he ends up he ends up uh, shooting at, at the line. You can see his little hat start spinning a couple times. That little bit on there, and I mean, it's it, yeah, it's it's hilarious, man. It's I mean, fun, dude. Ever... Yeah, Groucho starts shooting at his own men with a Tommy gun. I mean, there's just yeah. there's so many jokes in there that I don't know. Like the, this phrase has been kind of thrown around a lot. People keep saying things are meta. You know that they're so deep and with inside themselves. I mean, this was meta back in 1933. Because think about it, you're between two big wars. You, you're in the middle of the Great Depression. You're a little over a decade after World War One. You're a little bit of a decade before World War Two, And you're making a comedy like this, which would probably play a little bit better, a little bit later, closer to the war. If you're trying to be satirical, if you're trying to kind of put that mirror in front of the face of the establishment. So yeah, maybe this was just the wrong time for it to come out to be considered successful financially. But like we've both talked about and agree on, the influential message of this film is eternal. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, that's all it was. I mean, it was a satire. It was a satire. Yeah, you're not supposed to take it seriously. I mean, it's yes, it is 
kind of pointing out what's what's going on in society and it makes fun of it in its own comedic way but at the same time it's doing it kind of lightheartedly i mean you're really going to take it seriously by a guy with a with a mustache painted, <laughs> painted on literally painted on <laughs> yeah you say it was groucho it's groucho so leo what would be your selling points to anyone who hasn't seen this film like when you're chatting it up with your friends or you're having a sessions night and you start talking about duck soup, what is it that you tell them that gets them to want to watch it other than just, I'm sure by now people trust you with your opinions? Well, my, my original thing that would really bring it to that film would be I'd have to bring up, because we were fans growing up watching the original Looney Tunes and uh later on animaniacs and people oh, yeah. i mean we just laugh our heads off i mean growing up i mean in the 90s 80s we just laugh at that what's considered now to be i guess you could say insulting kind of cartoons that really aren't allowed anymore but it's like yeah where did that originally come from and i'm like dude you gotta watch this movie called duck soup i mean just you could you could definitely see where they took out all the comedic uh, just the timing, just the little sure, uh, skits, man. the gags, and then they put that into the cartoons, the cartoons that we grew up, we loved to it. And I couldn't help but notice in some of your episodes you bring up, you're all like, oh, how, what would you pair this movie with? I'm like, I don't think I could pair this movie with any, with anything else. If anything, I would have to pair it with a few episodes of Animaniacs. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the brothers right there. That is one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard because a lot of people don't make that connection. Like, Wacko is essentially a combination of Chico and Harpo, and Yakko is essentially Groucho. Like, it, it you're 100% right. So, yeah, I, I am so on board with that. Watch Duck Soup and then watch, like, all of season one of Animaniacs. That is a fantastic pairing. Exactly. I mean, kids would watch it. They would laugh their heads off. I mean, my kid... She's what? She's 13. I put on duck soup for her and she was like, dad, are there, other, are there more movies like this? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, here, let's watch Animaniacs. They're laughing their heads off. They're rediscovering it. And it's just like this, all this was brought by the Marx brothers. And if you know what, watch duck soup. This is where you'll find that humor. This is where it came from. It's just, it's just so crazy. It works. That's absolutely brilliant. My double feature, my pairing is a tiny bit different. I like to play on the whole satirical idea of war, since that's what this is with a lot more madcap comedy. So my double feature pairing for this would be Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, which is kind of like the exact opposite when you think about energy. Like that movie is a satire about war, but it's very downplayed and that's what makes it funny that's what makes it kind of you know mind altering is that you don't need the madcap comedy and screwball camp comedy that the marx brothers did for that film to work which is even funnier because kubrick originally wanted there to be a pie fight in the war room which the studio canceled but he loved the marx brothers so much and he loved all these screwball comedies he thought that that would add a fun little kind of like break from the dark satire of Dr. Strangelove. And the good thing about Duck Soup is that it's barely an hour long. So you could have a nice short film and then a little bit more meaty war satire right after. 
So that would be my double pairing. That's, you know what, that's a brilliant, that's a brilliant pairing right there. I can almost, I can almost picture George C. Scott's character kind of being in duck soup. You can almost see it in certain aspects. I mean, there's that one scene when they're having that conversation, he literally folds back, which was from what I heard unintentional, but yeah. he still kept going. He kept, he kept going. in the movie. And, and on top of that, you got Peter Sellers. I mean, one of the, I guess you could say one of the driest characters, but the way he would say the joke was so brilliant. I mean, gentlemen, there is no fighting in the war room. I mean, yes. he, there was no one else that could say that line even better. And I think at the end, I think having Slim Pickens riding the bomb to the ground, that is duck soup if I ever seen it. Like that belongs in duck soup. So yeah, I, I, that's where I got my pairing from. This has been such a great conversation. I'm so glad that we were able to do this. Um, before we go, how about you shout out your socials where people can find your podcast and uh, anyone else in your network of, of podcasters that you think that people should tune into? All right. You, uh, you guys can find me at Movies on Weed. You can find me at Movies on Weed Podcast. And if you like my podcast, you can listen to Mega Man. You can check out my friend that I do with the sessions with, Danny, Retro Historian. And you got uh, Los Compas. You have King Mexico. I mean, if you like my stuff, you'll love their stuff too. And on top of that, listen to Antonio on Cult Worthy. He's awesome. Thanks, man. I'm really glad we get to do this and we'll do it again for sure. Start thinking of movies you want to talk with. I mean, I'm sad that Paper Moon is like 1973. I'm sad it's a little bit yeah. later than than my cutoff of 1970. But when I saw that you loved that movie and your history with that movie, I was like, oh, I gotta talk to this guy. Yeah, we got. Yeah, we we gotta we gotta find a way how to fit in Paper Moon in there somewhere. Yeah, and on top of that, if just in case you ever want to start going through the whole filmography of Canon Films, let me know. Oh yeah, trust me, I'm all about the Canon films. So before we go, I just wanna let people know, you can find all of these Marx Brother movies on archive.org. They've got all of them on there for free. So, I mean, I've got the really great Blu-ray edition that's got all of them on there. If you wanna watch these films, they're usually like a little over an hour long. They're all available for free on archive.org. Do yourself a favor and go back and rediscover the Marx Brothers. And with that, Leo, I'm going to say goodbye to you. Thank you. Thank you, Antonio. I do appreciate this. This was, this was a fun one. Thank you very much, my friend. And next week's episode is going to be Twisted Nerve with Shane of the Shane and I podcast. You can find that right now on YouTube starring Haley Mills. I will see you all next week. Goodbye.